My name is Victoria Carr. And my name is Olatz Monpeo. And you're listening to the Researcher's Code podcast, where we interview women who are pushing the boundaries of tech in scientific research. Today we are joined by Dr. Flora Tass. Flora is Head of Artificial Intelligence and Augmented Reality at a company called Stream. She completed a PhD in Computer Science at the University of Cambridge and also was a founder and CEO of her own startup called Celerio. Welcome, Flora. So you are currently Head of Artificial Intelligence and Augmented Reality at uh, a company called Stream. So my first question to you is, what does Stream do? <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. This is my first podcast ever, and I'm so excited. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so what does Stream do? Okay, so Stream takes the simple concept of remote collaboration, the idea that you can have someone remotely help you out via video, and then they add augmented reality on top of that. So if you have, for instance, an issue with your fridge, someone doesn't have to come physically to your place to help you fix it. Someone can just be on the other side of the of the ocean and use augmented reality to tell you how and where you should fix your fridge. And so Stream is working with big companies across the world to kind of help them solve their customer support issues using augmented reality. Excellent. Yeah, I would like to know more about augmented reality because I was reading about it and then I thought, okay, where's the line between augmented reality and virtual reality? Yeah. So very good question. So virtual reality is when you are submerged in a complete virtual world. Nothing is real, everything is virtual and computer generated. With augmented reality, it's the concept of taking the real world and then augmenting something virtual on top of it. So looking at your fridge, the remote expert can then draw a circle around where you should maybe press something or, or fix something. And whatever is added is the augmented part on top of the reality um, in the video. Excellent. Cool. Yeah. Nice. And Excellent. sort of what products and services do does Stream reach out to? So are there any particular cases that you work with? Yes. So you have things like uh, home repairs. So I talk about fridges or washing machines. Uh, some of the big names that I can't mention here because uh, you are under NTA. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have heard of them, like the biggest furniture company in the world. Uh, Stream is working with them to help them um, support their customers through augmented reality. That's amazing. How how would it work in in the real world? So if you had someone who had a broken fridge and let me get this right. So that if they took an image and then you could tell the customer based on some features of that fridge what they'd have to do in order to fix it? Is that basically uh, the gist of what what happens? So let's say that um, I'm the customer, I have an issue in my fridge, and you, Vicky, you are the remote expert. So I notice that something is wrong with my fridge, I pick up the phone, I call, um, I call Vicky because she's the expert, and uh, Vicky says, okay, show me where your fridge is, and this is all happening in real time. With, like, let's say that you're using Skype, for instance. And so uh, what um, Stream will enable you to do, you the expert, is to say, well, Flora, can you come closer? Can you look at this part of the fridge? Uh, you, be- maybe needs to f- you maybe needs to push this button or fix this part. 
Uh, and this is all happening in real time. There is an interactive session between you and the expert. And this is how the expert can help you fix your issue in real time rather than coming physically to your place. And if it's maybe something you can't fix, that the user can't fix themselves, then the expert has all the data uh, for an in-person visit to the customer's home. Oh, cool. Yeah. Excellent. A bit about you. Um, so how did you end up working at Stream? I finished my PhD in 2016 at Cambridge. And uh, there was some amazing work we were doing there around, you know, images and how do you extract 3D information from images. And so off of that, uh, we spin up a company called Celerio uh, that we've we ran for about two years and a half. And Celerio was all about, you know, looking at the real world, understanding what's happening and how we can replicate this real world in a digital, digital format. So you can have these real things interacting with the virtual things um, to create a more immersive environment. And so we met Stream in the middle of that journey a year ago, or a year and a half ago in New York. We shared a common investor and we really liked what Stream was doing. They were showing us demos of their product. People were using it. People love it. And fast forward a year later, we were better testing our product and Stream was one of these people testing our product. And obviously they love it. We love what they are doing and we decided to kind of join hands and form a stronger partnership. And part of that was Celerio becoming part of Stream. Where does the name Celerio come from? Oh, wow. So uh, once upon a time, (laughs) (laughs) at 3 a.m. in the morning, (laughs) uh, we had just decided to form, we had just decided exactly what Celerio was going to be about, what the company was going to be about, which was trying to blur the line between what is real and what is virtual. And so what could be some, what would be the name to capture that spirit? Um, and so we were looking at a bunch of names. Um, and then uh, Ghislaine, my co-founder, says, what about a chameleon? Mm-hmm. I was like, what? He says, well, this, these animals can adapt to their environment. Uh, so maybe if we can, we can use the word chameleon, that will kind of show that we can merge in any kind of environment um, on the spot in real time. And so Celerio is basically a butterfly that can merge in their environment, a camouflage butterfly. Like your logo is a butterfly. It is a butterfly. (laughs) So rather than, because I don't really like chameleons that much, but I do like butterflies. (laughs) (laughs) So I I was like, that's lovely. Uh, Let's let's go with butterfly, let's go with Celerio. So it's the Latin name for a camouflage butterfly. Oh, wow. I didn't even know there was like a <laughs> word for camouflage butterfly no, in general. Now, you know, now we know. <laughs> so you started your higher education at the University of Boyer doing a bachelor's in mathematics and then you moved into computer science for your honours. So while you were growing up, what made you want to do mathematics and computer science at university? Uh, that's an amazing question. So... Uh, Jurassic Park, in one word. (laughs) (laughs) Jurassic Park. I don't know, I I think I I was eight, and when I was a kid, all I would do was, like, watch movies, Hollywood movies. I would just do that all day long. Um, So if I wasn't reading a book, I was watching a movie. And Jurassic Park just stood out. Like, from the first time I saw it, like, the dinosaurs and how real and and how they were immersed in their environment. Uh, so I was like, Dad, how is that possible? How, how are they making something so obviously not real feel so real? And so he says, it's computer graphics. And so I said, that's what I would do. I would do graphics. And I would try to make those dinosaurs, you know, interact with my physical world. 
and uh, and that would be magic. And now, and let's be magicians. That's nice. basically what I. <laughs> So, well, so him. this was when you were eight years old. I was about, eight year old. Um, yeah, and and then like a few decades later, here you are, like yeah. still still pursuing your childhood dream. I love it. That is amazing. <laughs> what an incredible story. So, how did you? Um, when did you first start learning to code? So exactly. So when that happened, let me think. I was eight, uh, and then my dad said that oh, but you need to learn. Uh, it's computer graphics and then he t- says well it's computer science uh that you need to be able to do those kind of things and so i think i w- actually started coding when i was uh, 11 year old because we didn't have a computer back then and so and so i tell my dad okay i'm gonna do computer science what do i need to learn for that and so he gives me this old book on visual basic it's like way old like the kind of book that he was using back when he was at university it's crazy. And then this this old computer that he brought from the office. And so he says, yeah, go ahead. So there was no one there to give me any kind of training. It was just like an old book, Visual Basic, and then a computer. So, yeah, I just started going through the book, starting writing my first program. How do you write a, an average of, like, two two numbers, stuff like that? So that's how I started. Wow. Um, and then, yeah, and then I've been coding ever since. Wow, so that's that's an impressive <laughs> jump. So you yeah. were coding from Visual Basic, like an yes. old Visual Basic oh, so old. from 11 years old. <laughs> I don't know what I was doing at 11 years old, definitely not, <laughs> not, that. Really not that. I was, yeah, I was getting into being a teenager and yeah, that didn't cross my mind at that point. That's amazing. <laughs> so then when you went to, so what made you decide to do mathematics at university rather than computer science? Yeah, so basically um, I've just finished my, well, high school diploma and the, the next step is okay what what do I need to do in order to accomplish my goal of being in the graphics uh, research environment and so the issue was that one I decided I wanted to learn English so I'm originally French speaking so mm-hmm. my first language is French but computer science is all about mostly everything is in English like most of the things are in English mm-hmm, yeah. and so I was born in a French-speaking part of the country I wanted to go to university in the English English part but they didn't have a computer science program they only have a they had math physics and the, and the other subjects were no computer science you could only, only take like nine courses in computer science and so I always loved math I was good at math I loved the, that they made sense mm-hmm. math makes sense and I didn't have to kind of you know I just hated physics basically and so (laughs) (laughs) I I, I don't till today I don't know how like physicists do what they do Mm -hmm. it's so hard for me math is so (laughs) easy and so I went ahead and did my bachelor in math and took some courses in computer science excellent Mm -hmm. so when you so how did you manage to do like an honors in computer science because I noticed that you moved to university at the end of your bachelor's to do to to do some modules in computer science so basically, uh, at the University of Boya in Cameroon, it was a three-year degree in mathematics and then a couple of courses in computer science. And then it was time for me to go abroad because I felt like I couldn't really push myself that much inside the country. So I went to South Africa and there, in order to do a master's, you need to do a one-year degree called an honors. Mm-hmm. And so I did that in computer science. And it was the very first time that I actually did a research project in graphics because part of completing the degree was uh, having a project. And obviously, I chose a project in computer graphics. Yeah. Uh, and so that's the one-year honors program that, um, yeah, that, that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
So that was your first exposure to research. It was so, so how much did you, fun. <laughs> how did you find it? It was so much fun. Um, so I arrived in 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 uh, I arrived in um, Gramstown. Uh, so that's where Rose University was based. And I know the only language I know is Pascal. I know some Visual Basic and then I know Pascal and that's it. And I didn't realize that no one was using Pascal in the real world. Mm. Uh, so, <laughs> so they kind of expected me to know C++ and Java that I had never done in my life. Mm. Uh, and so my project uh, was going to be in C++. Uh, and so I just had to learn those languages from scratch. But that wasn't the that wasn't an issue because I just love the project I had so much. It was it was how do you create a virtual crowd of people? So if you've seen like Lord of the Rings and you have like these big crowds or like Game of Thrones, you have these big crowds. Most of them are not real and they're computer generated. And so I was going to work on a project like that. How do you generate people that are not real working around as if they were real? Um, wow. And so I just love it so much. So like everything else was just a blur. Like I don't care what I need to do to learn how to make that. I'm going to do it. Yeah. And so, so it was a, it was a crazy year of like a lot of work, but also so much wording because for mm-hmm. the first time I would actually generate a scene and feel like I've done this. This is my work, even though I don't know how to draw. I'm, I'm no artist, but I could generate artistic scenes so that was really cool that's amazing it, mu- it must yeah. feel so amazing being yeah. able to produce something yes. yourself you can yes see and you can see, see it, it. yeah that project obviously didn't put you off from research so then you went on to do a phd in computer science at the university of cambridge so could you tell us how you got to the university of cambridge to do a phd yeah so uh, after finishing my honors at Rhodes. Uh, I did my master's at the University of Cape Town in South Africa. And uh, and then I started working a year after that. So my, my main goal was I had to do my PhD in one of the top 100 universities in the world. So that was kind of the aim I had have had like since I was a child. Like I need to do research, like the most amazing top level research. And that can only happen at top universities. And so I basically just... One year after my after my master's, just sending applications all over the place and getting rejected so many times. Um, oh tens and tens of rejection coming into my email bo- inbox every other day. So that wasn't fun. Um, but yeah, but actually, I remember something that my brother said at the time was that it's not that you are not good enough, it's that they're not a good fit for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so you just have to keep trying until you find the right place for you so that was really motivating like he's not the like you know brothers they are always teasing you but mm-hmm. <laughs> at that one moment in time he was really motivating mm-hmm. and so i got rejected from many places but then i got an offer from oxford and cambridge both of them both of the mm-hmm. both of those top universities, the universities <laughs> that would do <laughs> yeah so obviously you were just too good for all the other universities yes. in the world yes. and you were suited to the best universities in the uk i mean so. cambridge, that the cream of the cream mm-hmm. you know? yeah mm-hmm. so how did yeah. you choose between oxford and cambridge so yeah it came down to who gave me the more the more money mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. so that was it pretty simple <laughs> Yeah, and, and it's quite interesting how Cambridge was kind of the place I wanted to go because I had learned that my supervisor was also the supervisor of my prior supervisor at, in Cape Town. Did you know that before? I didn't. Okay. So it was like, okay, that's cool. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. So you were like the grandchild super 
uh, yeah, grandchild students of this supervisor. Yes, like just her. like descendants, right from <laughs> so from the top. So how did you find? Obviously, this was your. So was this the first time you were in the UK? Then yes, it was. It was. Um, so I came here October twenty twelve. Actually, remember first of October twenty twelve. That is like next week. Yeah, wow. anniversary. Yeah. Seven year anniversary. Oh wow. I've been here for so long. Anyway. <laughs> um yeah, and you know when here I was I don't know, I was just like blown away by the fact that I was actually here in the UK. I didn't even believe it, uh, you know, until I actually stepped foot outside of the airplane. Was your first time in Europe as well? Uh I had been to I had been to Switzerland a few years back, a year back, for the Anita Box scholarship. I think it, it was a very supportive environment at Cambridge. They made me feel welcomed and um, yeah, yeah, I think it went well. So being, um, so having stepped foot in the UK for the first time, how do you find settling into Cambridge as a PhD student? Was it a uh, slow start or was it very quick and easy to get into it, your p- project? I mean, I was a bit, I don't know, I was a bit... Um, it was a bit different from anything that I've been, any university setting I've been in to before. So a lot of the orientation work that you have uh, when you come at university is really for undergraduate students, not so much for graduate students, especially PhDs. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the support that you would get from your college, um, you wouldn't get that much as a PhD student. So a lot of the support, I got it from my department, from my supervisor and the research group I was part of, uh, graphics and interaction. Uh, it's actually called Rainbow Group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the Rainbow Group. Um, yeah, I just love them. They were so supportive. Uh, told me anything I needed. I needed to know about the city. Uh, bringing me to shows. Yeah, my first Broadway shows and stuff mm, like that. Brilliant. That was amazing. <laughs> so, did you have a good relationship with your supervisor? Oh yeah, yeah. He's very so Professor Neil Dodson. He's just the most amazing supervisor. Like just so supportive, and he just let me do anything that I wanted to work on so he he wasn't he was just there when you needed him and he's just so good at what he does in terms of like how do you phrase your, your research how do you how do you give talks and things like that so all the time he's just like in the background waiting for you to come to him for help so that was really good how did you find asking for help were you are you good at asking people for help because i asked this question yeah because as phd students and people going into like a completely different area where they feel so overwhelmed it can be very difficult to ask for help were you naturally happy to ask for help or did it take a bit of confidence building for you to be able to approach your supervisor and ask some more advice so, yeah, so that is the one thing my supervisor will say about me is that I'm very bad at asking for help. Like, I'm really? the worst. Okay. <laughs> Just because, you know, like, I've always done things myself. For the longest time, I didn't have any mentors or anything like that. So I always feel like I need to figure it by myself first before I ask for help. In research, you can't just, like, do brain work all by yourself. Uh, it just wasn't possible. So if, if I was going to kind of do the kind of work that was needed, I needed to do collaborations. And so my very first research collaboration was at Cambridge with another student supervised by Professor Neil Dodson. And so that's just how it just starts little by little where you kind of feel like I can't go any further by myself. I need I need a support system. And just supervisor is the first is the first contact for that. Yeah. Um, so it was very hard, but I've slowly learned go and ask for help when I need to. Yeah. Wow. Is it excellent that you've gotten you had an excellent working relationship with your supervisor oh, yeah. Yeah. i know i know it can be brutal i was just mm-hmm. i was just so like i don't know 
I pick my supervisors carefully. Let me just say. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's a, a, a kind of word of advice I would... I've heard a lot in the PhD community is make yeah. sure you you get on with your supervisor. Yeah, definitely. To, whatever the project is in a way. Mm-hmm. It's just so fortunate that you, you went into graphics yeah. and had a fantastic supervisor at the same time. So it was yeah. a really, really good Yeah, it was good like, scenario. It was it was really amazing. And like he will just let you go and like do internships. Like it was yes. just really amazing. So while you were um, doing your PhD, so you worked for Google as, for, as an intern. Yes. And then after your PhD, you also worked at Microsoft briefly. Yeah. Could you just describe your experience at these two big, huge tech companies and how would you compare that to the world of academia? I guess like one of the big questions that PhD students have is what do I do after my PhD? And so since I kind of always tried to plan my life three years ahead of time or like five years, I was really thinking about that when I came to Cambridge. And my goal was I was going to try different internships at different organizations. And then that would let me know maybe what I want to do after my PhD. So one of those organizations was Google Research. So I interned at the YouTube video content analysis team in Zurich for about three months. So that was really amazing. Like Google is... Well, they have amazing offices, obviously. She's smiling. She's smiling. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> and free food. So anyway, that was that was that was good. Um, it was very different from an academic environment in the sense that in the team I was working on, we were really looking at how this impact customers. How how does this move Google forward? For a bit of context, I was working on video ad effectiveness. So how can you predict how effective a video ad is going to be ahead of time? Obviously, that's like very important to YouTube. And it was using machine learning. It was using computer vision. Some of the stuff that I didn't know at the time. So it was very intense because you kind of always have to think of 10x. How can I add technics improvement to what was there before? So very driven. Lots of just smart people, like the smartest people I've ever I've ever encountered. So that was like, it was a bit of like, come in a room and like everyone's just like so much, so much smarter than you. It's like very hard. No, no, definitely not. I'm sure <laughs> they saw you this. and were like, this is a really smart person here. Mm. Oh my gosh. Going from to the University of Cambridge, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that says it all right. Yeah. Amazing. So, so it was really good. Yeah. Yeah. So when you, when you mention um, trying to predict how effective an ABBA is, what do you mean by that? Do you mean like whether someone would go and buy the product after witnessing the advert or is that something else? So it, so one of the things that brands really want to know is how is this impacting my brand? Are people going to remember my brand after seeing this ad like two weeks down the line, a month down the line? Because it's more of a subconscious influence than a conscious one. Uh, so you might not think about it, but like a month later, you might go and buy their product or you might talk about their product without knowing that it's because you've seen this this video ad like mm-hmm. a month before. So how can we kind of look at the video content itself? Like things like if there are more cuts, do you remember this ad more? Like mm. one month down the line? Mm-hmm. So what is the correlation between the video content and how effective or how how aware you are of the brand months later? Mm. Cool. Wow. So like so there was lots of interest within the company. Yeah. yeah Lots of psychology like, yeah. involved in that as well, I imagine. But yeah. Wow, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was a fun project, like really. Oh, so you're just like gonna control really our minds now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So Microsoft is like very different. Very different from my experience at Google at the at the Google video team because it was very much research focused in the sense of so it wasn't attached to a product per se, but it was looking at a few research questions. And so what I was working on was hand tracking. So obviously tracking 
your head is very important for things like if you want to play piano virtually, you need to know where your hands are. If you want to maybe translate sign language into English language, then we need to know what your hands are doing. So, uh, and hand tracking is kind of a core element of Microsoft Mixed Reality uh, vision. So I was looking at, and before they had been looking at hand tracking with one video. So you have a, well, you have one camera, you have a depth sensor, like the Kinect, and you are trying to estimate the poses of each joint on your hand. And so they were doing that really well. When I came in, I was looking at the question, what if you have more cameras? The more cameras you have, we think that the better accuracy you get. And so I was kind of looking at the research question, is that true? Um, how much more accurate can we get when we have m multiple um, cameras involved? And it turned out that yeah, it is true that you get you get better accuracy with more cameras, mm -hmm. and yeah, it's some of the stuff that I think they're now looking at when the, when you look at the Hololens where you have multiple sensors. Mm -hmm. um, some of this, or if you think of people, multiple people having multiple Hololens, can you then use all of that information jointly to then get a better accuracy for every single person? So that was uh, a really cool and interesting project. Uh, very much research. So it's it's great because with the big companies. They have a lot of money, so they kind of can invest quite a lot of, you know, part of their money into just pure research. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, uh, like maybe with some kind of parts of Google and Microsoft, you can. I've I've met people who just feel like they haven't really left academia, but it's just a bet, like nicer environment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's really cool. Awesome. How would you compare industry and academia, and the pros and cons between them? I, I guess both are amazing because in in, in academia you have more time. Uh, and more space to look at some of the research questions that you are interested in. Uh, but also, at the end of the day, you get to publish papers. Like, publish and perish is both a a good and a bad thing. But in the sense that you get to put papers out there, you, ha you get to put your name on something that you own, basically. Versus the industry where it's very driven, it's very fast, things are moving really quickly. Uh, but you are kind of part of, you are a piece of the machinery. Uh, mm -hmm. You don't always get to, I mean, very few people get to put their name on something and that thing is public. I guess it's the company that is seen from the public uh, perspective. But in industry, you get to bring things, bring products, put things in the people's hands and see how they react, which, you know, I don't know how many people read my thesis. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> but, uh, you know, but I'm pretty sure that at, um, whether it's at, um, at, Google Research or at Microsoft, a some people kind of get got to interact with what I was building, and definitely at Celerio, we've put what we've built in the hands of hundreds of developers, so that's definitely m fulfilling. And you don't get you don't spend time writing grant applications, so that's good. Mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> yes. I hate that's grant applications. Yeah. So you, have you? Did you write grant applications when you were in research? Then yeah, yeah. a lot that were rejected. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have to apply to us. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but actually, like one that was successful, I guess, was a Google fellowship that I got during my PhD. So that was good. It was the, my one successful application. Yeah. <laughs> during my three years. So after a short time at Microsoft, you then decided to start your own company called Celeria, which we talked about earlier. What made you decide to take the jump and start your own company? Uh, I was very naive at the time. I thought that the PhD was the hardest thing I would ever do. Like I was like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, 
So, okay, so I've always, you know, over the years you evolve your dreams. So when I was a kid and I was thinking of graphics and computer science, my dream was I was going to work at Google one day. And then I was going to work at Microsoft one day because they do so much amazing work around graphics. And then you start working in these companies and they're doing amazing work, of course, but you're kind of seeing that there's some um, potential, some opportunities that, opportunities that they are not tapping into. And because you have that much experience, you can kind of spot those opportunities. And then the question is, like, do you go, do you go and try to kind of uh, m monetize those opportunities? Or do you join a company and kind of try to fulfill their mission? And so, and so I just finished my, I had just finished my uh, internship at Microsoft. And I, I, I felt like what I was working on for my PhD, which was trying to make sense of images, making 3D information from images. And I kind of felt like no one was looking at it from the perspective that I was at the time. And that there was such a missed opportunities that all of these companies were not kind of taking advantage of. And so the question is, do, you, do I do that myself? Do I do that in the set and in the academic setting? Mm. Or, or do I go and get money? Uh, <laughs> money sounds good after like a PhD stipend. Uh, anyway, yeah, uh, it, it does. Like, I mean, but if that allowed you to do what you wanted to do, like yeah. you just wanted like the best tool to to do it, and in this yeah. case was to create what what yeah. you just really wanted, rather than depending on grants or a boss in Google or whatever, you just wanted to do your own thing. It exactly. was the time they were like, okay. I have passed like the hardest thing ever, which is a PhD. Now yeah. I'm ready to do whatever. Yeah, I want. it's like how hard can it be? It's so much, so much harder um, because we were so so the team first. So I decided, OK, I'm going to I'm going to jump off the wagon and do this thing. I need a co-founder. And so it just happens that my brother is an amazing engineer at Amazon. So I was like, OK, well, I'm going to start it with him, obviously. Uh, at least there's trust. And I know that he can't just run away when things get tough. So. So we, we, we joined, so we basically got, um, we got together and formed a team. And so the next, the next thing is like, how are you going to raise funding? But like first, what is, what is the company? What are, what, what are you building? Or what is it that, what is it that we are going to sell? It was basically an extension of my PhD. The idea that, you know, people are looking at augmented reality, virtual reality, mixed reality, but you still have this barrier between what's real and what's virtual. I can, I can, I can open my HoloLens and still feel like there is a disconnect between the real world and the virtual world, and we wanted to blur those lines so that it just feels immersive all the time. And so, that's what we were saying was basically um, replicating the real world in a virtual world so that we can blur the lines between what's real and what's virtual. And so, so you are in the UK and you are building a, a normative reality company. Uh, in a very new market, mm. and it's very deep tech. It's very hard to do um, technically. And so we went out there and we started fundraising. And it was just like brutal because a lot of people didn't get the tech. A lot of people didn't get what is augmented reality, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. And w what we should care about it. What is it going to do for me? Um, and so, and a lot of people we met were like in fintech or pop tech, which is very popular here in the UK, but not necessarily in terms of like immersive realities or, or, or the media and things like that. So it was just very hard to connect with 
with the people during fundraising um but um we were lucky enough to to be incubated in um entrepreneur first the london um incubator so they take they, they take talented people and then uh, help them form startups and and go out and fundraise and so they kind of helped us they gave us our first round of funding uh pre-seed and um yeah, and then we kind of went out there and raised more funds from the U.S. So it was hard, but it wasn't impossible, which is like, I guess, I mean, it's the whole point of starting a startup is that it's hard, but you just have to keep at it until you find a, you find a break. So that's what we did. Yeah, amazing. You didn't, you didn't give up and you believed you that, yeah, yeah. yeah, this all could work. Yeah, I mean, rejection is just part of the part of the game. Yeah, did you did you learn that rejection was part of the game while you're doing your PhD and applying for grants and things oh, like yeah. that? And oh, you yeah. think, well, if I can get through the grant rejection, then I can get through the the VC and yes. the you know the fundraising rejections too. I guess when it whenever you try something out of your space or out of your comfort zone, you you are gonna get rejected until you fi- you you get it the right way. That journey taught me that it's not about me. It's not not it's not because I'm bad. It's just because maybe I haven't found the right way to phrase or position myself or position my ideas. And I just need to like figure out what is, how am I going to connect with the person on the other side of the table. And so it's not because they are bad or I'm bad. It's just because it, there is a miscommunication that's going on or maybe it's just, it's just not the right fit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, has yeah. like, like it has to click. Like when it you're going to, to Cambridge, Google, and to, you know, get yeah. in the scholarship for Google. Yeah. It has to be the right thing. It has to be the right yeah. thing. Exactly. I mean, when you think of like better works, like after so many rejections and then getting funded by better works, you just love them. Like they are the best. Mm-hmm. They've been like so supportive. Like I don't mm. know if any other investor you would have gotten before that would have been as supportive. So mm-hmm. it's just like... I don't know. I'm a huge believer of like whatever it's meant to be, is, it's gonna happen. <laughs> um, I see that you're very creative. Uh, you're a very hard worker. But what do you like about your job the most? So it's when you spend weeks and months working on something, and no one you can't tell any. I mean, no one can kind of figure out what is that you're trying to do. But months later, you show them a video, you show them an image, a picture, and they just get it. Like for months, we would tell people, blurring the line between what's virtual and what's real. And they were like, what's that? Like, that makes no sense. But then we built an app where you could just like um, bouncing off of the table. But the balls are virtual, but the table is real. So you're actually having these balls that are bouncing off of the table and rolling off on the carpet. And it just makes sense. Like these virtual balls are actually interacting with the real table. Mm-hmm. That's what we've been trying to do all along. Like, yes, mm-hmm. that's it. Amazing. I just love that moment. So Those do you moments. get do you see the expression on people's faces being like the kind oh, of yeah. elation and oh, yeah, lighting up and being like, I get this. And then they're this like, is This a... is magic. I was like, You bet it is. <laughs> and so you've achieved your dream as an eight year old to just create magic. Oh yeah. Amazing. Yeah, I just love it when that so happens. Come full circle. You just have to keep pushing. So I'm nowhere near I mean the visions I have of what I want, that they they're still like getting bigger and bigger. And so I'm just trying to like get to that level or get to that point every single day. You've had an inspirational career. Yeah, I can say you are very busy. Uh, do you have time for any hobbies? Do you have any hobbies? Uh, well, the more be- well, the more times is going by, the less time I have for my hobbies. But there are two ones that I just love. Well, before I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a writer because I just love storytelling uh-huh. so much. Uh, sometimes I dabble into poetry. 
Okay, okay. So what's going on with that? <laughs> so that's fun. Well, I have this obscure blog that no one has. It's obscure. No one knows about it. Where from time to time, I just go and I just I write some some poems. Okay, so what's the name of the blog? So no way. Yeah, like no way. <laughs> it's really bad so poetry. So what, what do you talk uh, about in the poetry? Like I talk it's about it's a lot of things. I mean, um, like friendship, uh, family. I talk about love, romance, just things that are anything else than tech. Mm-hmm. Uh, because yeah, because I read a lot and I I'm very much into uh, character centric stories, so it's very much like around those lines, like drama. Mm-hmm. Um, we can tell that just from the way you speak that you are a natural storyteller. Oh, so actually, you. in a way that doesn't we surprise me. <laughs> so yeah, we can see through you. <laughs> yeah, my mom is like, thank God she didn't go and like study arts or something. Okay, <laughs> you could do that <laughs> easily. <laughs> I think to be honest. <laughs> Yeah, thank but, God yeah. you go on to tech where you can actually get a job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, yeah, I figured the was like, Amazing. Oh, well. And yeah. what's your second hobby? You said you've got oh, another one. Dancing. Dancing. Yeah. What dancing do you do? Well, I've done like the whole range, but uh, I really started off with ballroom and Latin dance. Yeah. I tried competing mm-hmm. for about a year and then I was like, okay, this is like intense. Yeah. So it was a great experience, like teamwork, traveling to different yes. cities and competing oh, amazing so you um, compete oh, wow. internationally as well uh, like amateur level yeah but amateur yeah. level was like really good so. so it was intense i was like okay maybe maybe i'll just like keep dancing to to social and mm. so now and then i double into different styles mm-hmm. uh it's a way for me to stay fit still be in a creative space and really just enjoy myself yeah yeah awesome. Awesome. Yeah. For our listeners, we are wondering what advice would you give to women and people who are generally underrepresented in tech who want to go into technology and computer science? I guess two things is first be confident. All of us have this imposter syndrome where you think that you're not good enough. But then everyone has one. I mean, no one is good enough. I mean, in this space, like a lot of people talk BS. They don't know anything. And (laughs) (laughs) and you think that they know things. And then you figure, you you just realize that everyone is just like lying and faking it all the time. So so I would just say that be confident. And the best way of being confident is just knowing your stuff very, very like deeply. So if it's research or like in my case, graphics, like, Knowing that, you know, you know the ins and outs of what you are working on, that, that is a great way of just building confidence. And the fact that someone else can come and just say nonsense, you will spot that right away. So one is confidence by just building expertise in whatever you're doing. And then the second thing is just grit and perseverance. Because, like, if you are good, if you are talented at something and you never give up, then what's stopping you? You are listening to the Researchers Code podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever podcasting platform you use. Also, if you could give us a rating, that would be really helpful for other people finding us.